0: Hi everyone, welcome back. This is podcast number 10. Yes, for the uh, the aware of you, the astute, the people paying attention, you'll realise that uh, for the second time, I um, wrongly numbered last week's podcast as number 8, whereas it was in fact number 9. It's a bit of a worrying thing really for a drummer who can't keep count of um, simple things. It's not like there's like 50 of them or 80 of them, there's just 10. So um, yeah, this is podcast 10, um, thanks for coming back if you have. Really appreciate the listeners and all the positive vibes from people listening, uh, it's great. It's great. Really appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of um, just talking this week about the gigging life and and, um, what you might need to have in place when you're kind of thinking about moving from being uh, maybe a hobbyist to being more of a pro and uh, trying to... Say, make your living out of um, playing, so yeah, this is not a um podcast about sort of the musician uh, life like you know staying within music um the kind of portfolio musician, if you like uh, we talk about this a lot in um in h e education because we get a lot of you know we get students that come into h e education and they uh, they want to um you know, they want to have a, a career in music. And that's a different thing. I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, I'm going to talk about specifically the sort of gigging musicians, uh, about things you might want to think about if you want to be a successful gigging musician, or things you might not know anything about, or just my experiences of that, really, um, doing different types of gigging, and what that entails. Um, yeah, but just thought I'd give a quick uh, update. It's been another busy week um i had one of those weeks this week where the last couple of days i've been playing um with a couple of people I've never played with before and uh i was sort of reflecting in the moment playing uh particularly yesterday it was quite a, not a stressful gig yesterday but it was a gig that was one of those where i was walking down the corridor uh towards the room we were playing in and i was just thinking to myself um I've got no idea what's going on, uh, really. Um, I mean, in in a specific sense, not in a holistic sense, because, you know, uh, I was playing with... uh, So on Friday, I did a gig, a little small gig somewhere, just sort of for nothing, really, you know, just one of those gigs where you're... uh, It was like a bit of a warm gig for yesterday, really, with uh, the sort of quartet. I was playing with somebody... um, bass player called Steve Berry, I've known him for a long, long, long long time, and he used to play in Steve's trio, and I've done lots of projects with Steve, and played a lot of his music and stuff, and great guy, uh, great bass player, and uh, so I hadn't seen Steve for a while, which was nice, but it, the, the other two people in the band I'd uh, never met, and uh, I'd kind of ended up doing this gig, because the gig that I had yesterday... So I'm talking about Friday, This the, the gig I did on Friday was this gig where I met these two guys for the first time, but the gig yesterday on Saturday was a funny one, I have a, a good drumming friend called Errol Roberts, who um, some of you listening may know, he, he's lived in Manchester for a long, long time, he did live in London for a while, um, I knew Errol when I was, when I was about 16, because I was... A, uh, Cheatham's School of Music studying classical percussion, and Errol was at the Royal Northern College of Music studying classical percussion as a as an undergrad student. And I remember sort of briefly meeting him, and uh, he was you know one of these you know these like slightly older um, people who was a little bit of a sort of oh, the older guy. You know, he's sort of doing. College, doing all these exciting things, you know. And I remember, that was when I met Errol. And I didn't see Errol for a long, long time, and then uh, kind of got to know him as I kind of got into the Manchester scene as a kind of jazz drummer. Because Errol, that's what Errol became. He he was he was drumming. I know he was drumming back then, but uh, became you know a really established uh, jazz drummer. And he moved to London for a while, um, and then came back to live up here. And me and Errol meet every so often um and some of you other drummers may may do this and um, we have this thing uh, we jokingly call a symbol summit where we uh, get together and we errol brings some of his cymbal collection he's got quite a large cymbal collection um and we sit for an afternoon and, and talk about just everything, whatever really, drums, nonsense, cymbals, play some cymbals, normally swap some cymbals. So Errol normally leaves here with maybe two or three of my cymbals and I normally end up keeping about 20 of his, no, about three or four of his. And uh, so I always tend to do very well out these swaps and uh, like at the moment I've got this, it's just got one actually at the moment, uh, this azure Istanbul Azure, I think that's how you say. it, Ride, um, which uh, I've had a couple of those in the past, and they were a little bit, um a little bit bright for me. And this one I've got here is one that uh, I think Errol's sort of hoping to get sort of get rid of, um, but it's again it's a little bit bright. So we we had this kind of day together, playing cymbals and and playing a bit of drums and talking about a bit of stuff. And right at the end of the day, he said, "Oh, can you do this?" Um, I might need you to do a gig for me. Uh, it's it's way up, way over in uh, in February, and this was in October, November last year. Um, anyway, uh, I said, "Well, I'm free, so let me know." He dropped me the date in a text message, oh, usual sort of thing. Um, this almost sounds like I'm talking about the subject we're going to talk about today already. It's kind of an example of what can happen. But so what? Errol then did is, I think he he just sort of mentioned. To the people I was playing with, that I could do the gig, and then I never heard from him again. And then I got this message from the band leader uh, who, was, uh, who was kind of uh, putting the gig together, asking if I was available to do this gig, and I, <laughs> I already had it in the diary. So it was one of those bizarre things. So the yesterday was, yeah, it was uh, the Friday gig Would then happened, came afterwards as a sort of subsequent thing where the, the band leader decided he got this little opportunity to play together with the piano player who I'd never met. And uh, and do uh, just do a little gig just just to kind of you know it's nice to just play together before you do um, what was yesterday was quite an important gig um, with a great singer called Tina May who, who lives uh, down in London and I've worked with Tina a few times and she's brilliant um, super nice person and brilliant singer great musician you know and um, but it's always one of those gigs where you're um, You're handed like a pile of music, and uh, you know, you're not 100% sure of what's actually happening. And um, you might not always know all the tunes, you know. I mean, I'm talking about actually the specific melody, there's maybe a style on the sheet, but you know, even the style thing, you get into that kind of era playing, you know. um, We're playing with the piano player, and he wrote, he'd written a tune, and we did his. Uh, this original composition of his on on both nights actually, and and luckily, you know, before the for the first uh, playthrough, uh, we had a little playthrough on the Friday, and he came over and said, "Oh yeah, yeah, this is like this kind of up tempo thing goes half time. Um, the melody's quite rhythmic, but don't don't really play the hits." But he said, "You know, modern like contemporary swing, you know." So it's like straight away, it's like, "Oh, right, okay, yeah, I know, I know what to do with that." Um, Whereas well, if someone just writes swing on a chart, you, you you really don't know what the era is, you know, it could be anything. So, um, yeah, it was a, like yesterday was uh, quite, um, quite a stressful day in a way. The gig went fine, um, uh, but it felt like one of those very, very sort of long gigs. And it was in the middle of the afternoon, which is always a bit strange. I always find this the afternoon gig thing a bit disorientating. I would sort of come home and feel like going to bed even though it's only seven o'clock or something um because my sort of body clock is always a you know, tune to that thing of a gig happens in the evening um so yeah that was and then just uh, busy at work and um so yeah i wasn't able to record this was going to try and do it last night saturday night but i was a bit tired as i was saying and uh and now um uh, now we've got this bit of a storm going on outside, so hopefully it'll be... Um, it's all quiet and down, and the sun's sort of come out, but I keep getting these blasts of wind. Um. So, yeah, anyway. So, um, that's about it with the news, really. Not much else to say. Busy week next week as well. The thing is nice at the moment uh this kind of ties into the, the subject of today as well is the thing that feels nice for me at the moment is I feel like I'm playing a little bit more which is great so I've been I've spent quite a long period of time uh, for different reasons some uh, personal reasons and uh, some just because of um, sort of a situation really but um, a lot of it was mainly due to a kind of personal choice of of not really playing very much, um, uh, and doing quite a lot of practice, and that's been it's been quite nice to have that opportunity to step back. Um, I was talking to a drumming friend of mine a few years ago. Um, and he was telling me a story about uh, a guy that does some teaching for him on um, on these. Um, Summer schools that he runs occasionally, and this guy—he um, was telling me that this guy gave up for a year. I mean, I mean, totally completely stopped playing gigs. Said said didn't say yes to anything, and uh, the reason why was basically to practice. And sort of secretly, I've found this idea uh, really rather appealing um, in in one way Um, just that I it's like when you've been playing for a long long time sometimes it just feels like it's a nice idea to have a bit of a break from um, from the sort of pressures of having to kind of um, be who you are you know and what's expected of you as a player um, and it's a kind of double-edged sword, I think, because obviously you develop yourself um, to play how you play. Um, and then people uh, gravitate towards you, and you gravitate towards them, and they use you because they like the way you play. And some people who, you know, are not into the way you play, they they don't use you, and that's fine, and that's sort of stuff I've already talked about um, in some of the previous episodes. Um, but sometimes um, i get i just get bored with myself really you know it's like i've been playing a long 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 time i've been playing longer uh or twice as long now as um, as in my life as as the time i've not been playing you know started at 12 and uh, it's actually three times longer now um think about the maths of it actually for a second yeah i've been playing of the of sort of my life so far I've been playing three quarters of it which is you know brilliant and a a real privilege and uh, it's great but sometimes it does feel like you just want to kind of have a break from going out and doing gigs and playing the way uh, you've always played and uh, I sort of yeah I've thought about this idea of sort of just stopping playing and just um, not saying to people, "Oh, I've given up," but just not being available for gigs for a while, you know. And uh, I mean, it, that does have a detrimental effect upon your um, on your on your career. Of course, people don't constantly ring you and just keep ringing and ringing and ringing you. Um, they get to a point where they stop ringing you, you know, and and within. Um, the scene that I live in, that, that, that doesn't take very long because there's lots of good players, you know, and so uh, the sort of gigs I'm talking about, um, people move on to use other people, you know. There's plenty of, you know, plenty of different people available in the pool, so to speak. Um. So. And and yeah, and it it affects some longer-term projects that I'm involved in because there tends to be um, a bit of hiatus, you know, in some of those projects. Where these people I've worked with now for, for say, ten years, and we can go a year, eighteen months, and um, and be in communication with each other, but not be playing any music together, just because of the nature of the project. You know, people go off and do different things, and. And there's sort of different stuff going on with you know with record releases and doing you know sort of collaborative projects with other people or solo projects, and then the band project starts again, and then it just the band project gets shelved um, for a while because other things happen. And so, in in a way, um, if I was just working, you know, on a two or three projects like that, the, the opportunity to actually. To have a bit of a break from playing you know four five six eight months or something would be quite easy but uh, the nature of what I do uh, that's not possible so uh, and then there's also a sort of professional um, obligation or pressure or um, it just feels to me like if uh, like I teach. Um, you know, help, mentor, whatever you want to think of it. Um, the kind of teaching that I actually do is is more of the latter because it's you know you, you're I'm dealing with very uh, self motivated young people who have real aspiration and and a clear idea about many aspects of, of what they want to do. They're just trying to find the quickest way to do it. And uh, the most efficient way to do it, and and all those things, and learn how to practice, and that kind of stuff. So it feels like I have to, you know, I have to have a connection still to the the, the, the actual the reality of playing music and and gigging music, and and uh, you know, and at least have a connection to sort of you know, modern culture within. Uh, the music that i'm playing or the music that they're playing at least have some kind of connection to that and so the thing of stopping playing doesn't really sit very well with me because i um as i've been you know quite vocal about it i I do believe that uh, the music is a social thing and we should play um with people uh I think, you know, the world of social media is great and all that stuff and it's nice, you know, to make connections and things. And But it, it's not the, I don't believe it's the be-all and end-all. Um, I mean, maybe the culture of it's changing. I don't know. Uh, it still doesn't feel like that to me. You know, there's still audiences for music that want to come watch people play music. And um, I think if you're playing, you know, any instrument, uh, seriously and properly, et cetera, et cetera. I, I just believe that, you know, uh, playing with people, playing music in venues and playing in front of people and sharing that thing and doing all that stuff is is a big part of this thing. It's one of the most important aspects of that thing. So it kind of gets me onto the sort of topic really today of of um, of becoming, you know, the gigging musician. Um, so again, this is not a portfolio musician. There's, there's maybe a thing in this of of, of uh, becoming a styles player. You know, having having lots of understanding, lots of different styles. But I'll, t- I'll talk about that a bit later. Uh, but that's a kind of that's a decision within, you know, um, within how flexible you want to be and how useful you want to be to other people in relation to being you know useful and employed and and been able to sort of play in different situations that was something that always appealed to me um for um, it wasn't it wasn't for working reasons it was for musical reasons uh, luckily a byproduct of of that kind of interest in playing different styles of music means that you're useful to uh, to more people i think you know so so one of the things like one of the first things to think about really when you're becoming a pro drummer, and this is something that I was really lazy with for years in a way. I grew up in a family where we didn't drive, so um, which may be a, quite a bizarre uh, concept to many people, and it might be a bizarre concept to a lot of people that know me because of how people know I have a real passion for uh cars motor cars and 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 uh, track driving and racing cars and things like that and and just vehicles in general I just love anything that sort of moves with a an engine of any t- of any type really you know just sort of mechanical things generally appeal to me and uh vehicles appeal to me and then you know within that i like stuff that's um quick and uh has lots of well, has has both things really? Lots of talk, which is very useful for sort of moving about the world, day to day, but also the sort of power and stuff that revs and sounds great and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and I and I do between I don't know six and f- twelve track days a year, depending on what's going on. I have a good friend of mine who we uh, do a lot of driving together, and you know we drive we do we do sort of trips to tracks and things and it's good to do it with somebody else because it's like a social thing again it's uh, uh but it's a whole different scene of people for me as well so it's quite nice because that is a, it's a real switch off from music the, the driving thing you know the uh the, the the friend of mine who i drive with uh he's not a musician uh he's very into music actually he's a very musical person actually uh, but uh murphy's he's, um he's uh nuclear is involved in nuclear industry physics and things like that nuclear physics and electrical engineer and things you know stuff that's way above my head um and we do often talk about kind of music and stuff because he's very into music and he always has been and we met sort of through a mutual friend who i play with a lot bass player called pete turner who's also involved in the nuclear industry Uh, i don't think he isn't i think he's just um he's decided to go sort of full-time music and be a contractor but uh um, but we do talk a lot about music, but we do a lot of driving together and we talk a lot about cars and we 're constantly trying trying to learn to repair things and uh having debates about what 's wrong with something and stuff and i and I love all that stuff it 's brilliant um because it 's just it 's just a completely different part of life you know and it 's a switch off from the music thing and the music thing is really you know it takes it occupies it dominates. Many of us you know, are involved in it in in so many ways, um, but the thing with the car thing was that my family um, had no money. We didn't have. We, I grew up in the. I grew up in a reasonably nice um, part of the world, actually, um, on a you know reasonably nice sort of housing estate and all that. But there's there's the sort of um, the decision that uh, my family made to uh, to move there was uh, was quite a big deal in the family at the time. So it's sort of moving away from the um, from where the whole family was from, the side of Manchester, well, Salford, where the whole family lived. And my dad was like, he wanted to, he just had aspirations to move away from that thing to somewhere that was a little bit more countryside and uh, just a bit more space. I think that really appealed to him. Oh, no, I know for a fact that it did, but uh, but also I think he wanted it for us, you know. Um, when we used to go on family walks when we were kids, me and my brother used to be sort of moaning, oh, I've got to go for a walk, you know. you know. My dad used to say, you know, you could be living... Back where we lived, and not have the opportunity to walk in these hills, you know, and not see all these things, and and have this fresh air and exercise and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and it's something that me and my brother both grew up to really appreciate. Um, you know, by the time I was, when I was fourteen, I moved away to music school in Manchester. I was living in the middle of Manchester in a boarding school, and I used to love coming home and. Um, spending time actually on my own it was quite nice because in a boarding school was full-on you're always around people's all kinds of stuff going on all the time and it was musically very very intense and and uh, and i loved it it was great and i really thrived in that environment um, musically and socially but i used to like going home and i didn't go home a lot i only went home about four times a year and uh, i used to love just going home and sleeping for hours and hours and then just going up into the hills on a bike just sort of cycling around and I was often home um, the longer periods I was at home would be Easter and summer so there'd be just loads of time to sort of amble around and just ride the bike you know a lot of my friends then uh, were living in different parts of the country and different parts of the world because they were all coming from all over the place at the boarding school so I didn't see a lot of my friends during those holiday times it was like a quite a nice time of solitude and just sort of enjoying the countryside you know but the one thing that we didn't have as a family was a car so everything was public transport and when I kind of came back from London and lived at home for a while and then I moved um, moved away from home went to live in Sweden for a while and then came back and decided to stay in England um, and I moved sort of out of out of home into Kind of into Manchester, really. So my sort of part of my years of living in various different suburbs of South Manchester um, for quite a number of years. I used to play in a band where the bass player I drove uh, something I mentioned in a previous podcast. You know, and I and I just didn't get my driving thing together. You know? I didn't learn to drive, and I was trying to learn to drive. I started to learn to drive when I was twenty-one when I moved back from London and ran out of money. And then I started again in sort of 1995, 96, ran out of money again. And the thing that's hard with driving is if you don't have a family car, you can't practice driving, you know. I mean, I even bought, in 95, I bought this little Fiat Uno, this car, and I had it insured. My dad paid for the insurance on it. And uh, I used to go out with a mate of mine, you know, just with the L plates on, just trying to practice driving, um but it was just so hard to sort of if you haven't got somebody all the time who will go out with you and help you out and and if you've got the money you know i was just, just had no money at all during all that period really the 90s was a very poor period uh and then when i eventually sort of moved to manchester um in kind of 96 97 uh, well, so well well mid late 95 it was actually um that was sort of the end of the car thing for a while i i i sort of abandoned this car i couldn't afford to run it um and then i was just gigging for nothing for years you know and just kind of scraping through anyway by the by the end of by 1998 just after new year i came back and i did my driving test and i passed first time which i'm very proud of and uh had um had a couple of really good instructors at the end of my kind of learning to drive period uh, through the the BSM the British School of Motoring which um, they were really good instructors one was um this lady she was brilliant and she had this great way of sort of of being able to be uh, aware of stuff going on around you but not not distract you from the the, the sort of job of driving and um uh, and then she left and I got another instructor, this guy who was really good. He was a bit like her and he was just very sort of methodical and it really appealed to me. He was, you know, and just never got into any things in the car. Sometimes, you know, with instructors, I always hear hilarious things of people that fall out with their driving instructors because they're shouting at them or, you know, or sort of disagreeing about X, Y or Z because the instructor's always right, you know. And uh, I... um I don't I, I don't do too badly with instruction. Um, but I don't do too I don't do very well being told off. So um I found these last two instructors were great because they were good at instructing and and they I found a way of not telling me off. So therefore I was never kind of reacting to this kind <laughs> of being told what to do in a way I didn't like, you know. And it's important to find people like that. I think, you know, even in, in teaching when you're When you go and study with somebody, you've got to try and find somebody that has that way of understanding the way that you need to be told how to do something or helped with something. Anyway, I passed first time and uh, that was great. And then I had this realisation just after then, and this was like really late in my development, you know, we're talking I was 28 uh, by this time, 27, sorry, I was 28 in that year, but just turned 27. Uh, that I just had this realization that wow I can go anywhere now on my own you know I, I've 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 learned to drive and it was something that I'd never had in my childhood and growing up in the family we never had a car so everything was public transport I was so used to travelling public transport And then I'd been gigging for two years two or three years with this same band that. Um, where i was being driven everywhere and um and finally i got this thing where i I learned to drive and then suddenly i bought this car i bought several terrible cars that were hilarious all kinds of things happened but i learned loads of things about cars you know as well which was good but um i just suddenly loads of people started ringing me um for to do all sorts of different gigs, you know, I just suddenly was like inundated with um, with with offers of you know gigging with people, um, and just that thing of just that one decision had made a huge difference for me because obviously a lot of people knew who I were, but I I, I wasn't really able to gig a lot of the time because I couldn't drive, you know, and uh, the couple of bands I'd been working with long term at that point um we're always coming uh, very graciously coming by my house picking me up and doing our things. so the driving thing's a big deal and then what you realize um is that you realize that you should be good at driving and and I'll tell you why because you're a professional driver really if you're if you're a sort of jobbing musician playing kind of small jazz gigs Functiony sort of gigs, wedding gigs, doing all that kind of thing—just those kind of gigs—and you're schlepping your own gear around. The one thing that you need to be good at, apart from music and and being on time and all that stuff, which we'll talk about in a minute, is being being good at driving, because you're going to do a lot of it. Um, I have friends. I I don't do anywhere near this kind of mileage anymore, but I, I've got friends that that do. Um, in the u k which is a small country we 're not talking about North America here, where I know people drive over huge distances and uh, at a blink of an eye five hundred miles to go and see their mate Bob round the corner and have a brew and drive home again, you know well, maybe a slight exaggeration, but I know that you know people live in big on big land masses think feel very differently about the the sort of road trip mentality of driving whereas in in the u k you know i've constantly hear people that moan about driving forty miles, which is hilarious but uh Musicians that I know do f- between thirty five and forty five thousand miles a year in the u k are really um they're going to a lot of different places over not huge distances you know so they're really really busy people um and the average mileage over here a yearly mileage i think is twelve for a for commuter and um I commute now I have a full time job um I commute from my home. In Bolton to Leeds, which is fifty miles exactly from where I uh, from the house here to where I park. So I do a hundred miles a day. Uh, I pretty much drive every day. Sometimes I work at home, but so I, you know, I'm doing five hundred miles a week driving to work. Um, for as for a, you know, a large proportion of the year, it's not all of the year because I get you know obviously holidays, and I do work at home, especially uh, work at home more when I'm not teaching. So. So I'm sort of hitting that average mileage a year quite easily. You know, that's kind of what I do, really, uh, for the job. Um, but music, professional musicians are driving all over the place. Uh, and and I have more conversations with other musicians that I see uh, about cars than, than probably about music. Uh, one of the reasons for that is because I know a lot of people know that I'm into cars so a lot of people ask me a lot about things about cars and a lot of it I've got no idea because I'm not a mechanic or an expert uh, but I do know bits and bobs about cars um, but it's also that thing of we're pro drivers, you know um, we we drive, you drive for a living really if you think about doing a two and a half hour gig that's uh, you know 150 miles away in in the uk with the state of our motorways and how slow everything is and the ro- constant roadworks and average speed cameras and traffic jams and it's just a bit of a joke really you know you're driving in the day the best time to drive in the uk really is is in, is is in the late evening and the night you know and through the night even though a lot a lot of motorways do close because they're constantly trying to fix these bloody things and uh, do roadworks and all kinds of stuff and but you know, generally, uh, if you're driving after eight p.m. all the way through to say six a.m., you pretty much can do stuff in, in the in the time that actually, so you know, so to speak, God intended. You know, like actually the time that it generally takes. You know, um, but any other time, it, it's taking you. You're adding a good fifty percent, maybe a hundred percent of that time on. And so, if you're doing like a two and a half hour I mean, I'm talking about like set, you know, getting in and setting up to f- to finishing the gig thing. Five hours out, five or six hours outside that time are in the motor car driving. You know, so you've got to get used to this idea of being a driver. Uh, and uh, I'm very lucky because I enjoy driving. I I always enjoy driving, uh, even just getting in the car, any, anywhere, in any in any car as well, Just I just enjoy driving, you know, so uh, I don't mind driving to work I decided to, you know, to live 50 miles away from where I work which um, doesn't sound very far but it's a pretty hideous journey most days, uh, because of just because of traffic, and volume of traffic it's a very busy commuter route across the Pennines in the UK um, but I enjoy driving, so it it doesn't bother me that much. I, I like to listen to things in the car, listen to podcasts, and just um, listen, occasionally listen to music, but mainly listen to podcasts and just you know just sort of have a bit of chill time, really, um, and just get the cruise control on, you know, and just uh, make your way through the traffic. And that that's the thing of of going to gigs is is that you you've got to be into driving. So if I was going to give anybody any advice about being a gigging musician, you get your driving chops together. There's a band that I, an artist that I work with, and we do, um, when we work together, we generally tour, we record or we tour. And uh, the touring is done on a kind of, uh, on a, um, it's done, we're basically uh, large splitter vans um, and a smallish, you know, crew of people, band and, and a tour manager and a sound engineer. And uh, I always put my name down as a, as a designated driver for the splitter van because doing long distances, and we'll do, sometimes we'll drive from um, north of England down to... Or south, kind of um south of England, west of London, but and then we'll drive over to you know we'll drive over to Switzerland or something. And then if you're sat in the back of, you know, just sat in the back of a van and I don't sleep when I'm travelling. So so the best thing for me, the decision for me is to be involved in part of that or all that journey of driving the van, you know. And uh, I just enjoy it it's just you know another chance to drive something different something interesting or you know just driving something really so i've kind of embraced that whole thing and then the next thing to think about really with with when you're becoming like a pro is like your gear you know is really having good gear and having you know like just fundamental things like having good drum cases and like, one of the things, one of the best cases I bought in the last few years um, was one of these Ahead uh, hardware bags, which have wheels on them. They're like a golf bag, really. They've got an extendable handle. And uh, I bought the first generation of it, and it kind of fell to pieces on the bottom, and they they actually replaced it for me for free, um, which was very good of them, because I think they had a bit of a design flaw on the way in which they were put together. But it was a shame. It was a really nice-sized bag. But you know, the one I use now has really chunky wheels on it. It's really good. You can get a bass drum pedal in there, and it's great case. Uh, and you can kind of expand it, or it's got these straps on it where you can make it quite a lot smaller than it is. So you can get it into the sort of boot of the car. The only th- problem with it is it's got where the wheels are at the bottom uh, in one way it's great because it's really well made it's chunky but the second thing is it takes up a lot more space in the boot than the actual hardware takes up um my favorite hardware bag it was it was had it until it was literally like it was like it'd been eaten by rats you know it was a horrendous it just fell to pieces in the end but it was a rock it was a protection racket um Bag And it was the perfect size for sort of German saloon boots. And it was perfect square. And all the hardware went inside it perfectly. And it used to just fit in this great space. And uh, so when you think about buying cars, you know, like one of my favorite ever uh, drum car for moving drums around with was um, the first nice car I ever bought, actually, was a Volkswagen Jetta. 1.8 1.8 GT. Um, it was a nice car I bought for a friend of mine who was, um, who was a bit of a tinkerer. He rebuilt re- the engine on it and stuff. And uh, and the Jetta boot, um, which became the bore over it, I think in the North America, the, the Jetta name continued. But it was like the Mark... Um, it would have been the Mark II f Reg Mark II Golf body. And the boot, it was an incredible boot because I could get with an eighteen-inch, eighteen by fourteen bass drum, fourteen by fourteen floor tom, hardware bag, a thirteen by uh, five and a half snare. I couldn't get a fourteen, but thirteen, and a, and the twelve tom and the cymbals. I could get all of it in that boot and shut the boot. So you could park up somewhere uh, with the kit, the whole kit in the boot, and it would all be um, hidden. You know. And I've never found a car, uh apart from I had a Volvo X C ninety for a time. That's a huge vehicle. You get like an enormous amount of stuff in the boot and still have five seats. Um, you could get like a band's worth of gear, whole drum kit, guitar and bass, amp and guitar and bass. And it's a huge big four before thing, you know, just a sort of mobile lounge, really, those things. And uh and with the seats down, I could get I could get three drum kits with the twenty-four bass drum in the back of that thing. I remember going to record uh, for Tom McRae years ago down, going all the way down to Wales, down to this residential studio, and I took loads and loads of gear, and it was unbelievable amounts of stuff uh, that I got inside this thing. You know, uh, it was amazing for moving stuff around, and it's extremely comfortable to drive, you know, and um, and reasonably efficient, and all that kind of stuff. But quite actually, ultimately, quite expensive to run really, because um, it was efficient for the size of what it was, but it wasn't efficient in relation to a normal car. You know, get yourself a Skoda Estate or something, you do seventy miles to the gallon. It's you're not even talking half of that in the XC90. But uh, but it's really important this thing of, of getting you know the right kind of gear and then the right car to put the gear in. You know. But, and he's having the right gear for the right gigs. So he's having the right kind of snare drums, you know, the right bass drum. You know, you don't turn up to do like a like a soul funk kind of gig with one of those silly little kits with a 16-inch bass drum, you know. I went through that. I had one of those Sona Jungle kits for a while and I was going through a bit of a period where I was gigging a lot and I was getting a bit lazy with gear. I was getting sick of carrying loads of gear around. And I bought this Jungle kit and I managed to get it all so it would fit in the boot of pretty much any car the size of it. And uh, some bass players I was playing with were just moaning at me, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah it's not really a bass drum, is it? It's, it's like a tom on legs, you know. And uh, and they were right. It's quite, they're quite punchy, but they don't, have to, they don't have the bottom end, you know, that bass players like if you're playing those kind of gigs. you know. All right for jazz gigs and stuff like that, and tune it up quite high and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, I, I don't think... Um, you know, playing on the, you know, doing rocky or funky sole, solely kind of gigs. We need some good bottom end, 20 or 22, really cuts the muscle. Even 18s, I don't think, work that well on those gigs. I don't use 18s anymore. So I've kind of got four bass drums, 18, 20, 22, 24. That pretty much covers all the stuff that I do. Um, and uh, then l- like cymbals, you know, getting the right cymbals for the right gigs, And that's not always obvious, but you know, it's just having a nice selection of cymbals. Uh, One of the things, if you're getting into playing jazz, is is you need to find a nice ride cymbal. You know, it's really important that you find a ride cymbal that that you can crash, essentially, and that is not is not kind of two dimensional sounding. You know, very kind of high endy and sort of just cut for cutting through the music. Might work with a big band well. You know, Buddy Rich was famous for that thing of having. who picking, hand-picking quite high-pitched sort of 20, 22 rides out because he needed that thing of them cutting through the band, you know. Um, but if you're getting into small group jazz playing, that sort of thing ain't going to cut it. People are not going to like your sound, you know. So, yeah, just like getting the right gear is really important, getting the right kind of hardware, hardware that's not going to break your back. I carried this collar lock rack system around me for years, when I used to have my DW kit, I bought in sort of 1991, and uh, amazing set of drums. And I used to carry the whole rack around with me. But then I realised I could, I could adapt the rack and make it much smaller. And um, yeah, it was great, uh, but it was still really, really heavy. So then I basically um, changed all the. The hardware on the on the toms and everything and got all the yamaha stuff and for years i used uh this single braced yamaha hardware simple stands and I, I changed all the tom stem stuff over to, to yamaha stuff and uh and yamaha single braced um hi-hat stand and the yamaha basement pedals uh and snare stand with the with the sort of you know, the tilter that you can put, in, put at any angle. The single brace one, the the, the, the lightweight one. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm not in any way sponsored by Yamaha, by the way. It's just that I found that that hardware was the lightest, the best, most reliable, tough. Um. I've got these cymbal stands here. I've still got one in front of me, actually. It's, it must have done 4,000 gigs, if I think about it easily, you know, and it's still fine. You still just put it up and it's fine, and it works. You know, the legs haven't got loose and all that stuff. You know, Gibraltar stools, stool bottoms, rock and sock tops, I think that that's the best combination. I've got two Gibraltar uh, with the screw thread ones, you know, the ones that you just you spin around. Um, amazing. Just so well made, you know, and they just chuck them in a hardware bag no problems you know um so yeah the kind of hardware thing's a big deal because you've got to carry all that metal around me haven't you? you know i mean i some of these yamaha stands i actually because they go very high i i just got a hacksaw out and i kind of hacksawed half of the stands away so i took all the stands took the, the top and the middle bit out you know and just hacksawed half of the of the metal off um two or uh, two or three of them I've got about five of them and two or three of them have been butchered a bit you know because you carry metal around you never use so actually it's completely pointless isn't it so um, but if you know if you're a touring musician you've got techs and you've got crew nobody cares do they you just just use, use the hard the most sort of um, chunkiest hardware that you can get your hands on you know um, but yeah gear's a big you know Get the right gear for the right gig. The right snare drum, the right cymbals, the right bass drum. You know, even down to heads. The right, you know, the right sort of heads. Um, It's like, don't, you know, don't turn into a jazz gig with Evans Hydraulic, you know, those blue or red heads. They They don't sound that great, I don't think. You know, even the EC2s, I love the EC2s. You can tune them to sound all right, but really you just want a nice coated head, you know. Just, to, just for that sort of sound, and generally, like if you have got like a like an an Emperor or a G two, those heads, I just think you can kind of do almost anything with those those heads, you know. Um, and the Ambassador thing as well, very similar, you know. It's just a really, really good solid head. A G one, you know, Evans, good solid head. I've got one on, on the bass drum at the moment I've just bought these new sonor, these sonor phonics and on the 18 I've got a G1 it's just brilliant it just plays great you know using the calf tone 56s on, on the toms on the 14 and the 12 and the 13 for the jazz thing and then the 16 got an EC2 you know and if I do um, if I do like a, like um, I do this project this disco project with an orchestra this disco classical it's called with an orchestra and stuff and uh, I'll take the uh, the calf tone off the 13 and I'll put an EC2 on the 13, you know, because I can tune it l- low and it's just got that rocky thing. If I really want if I want to use the five piece or even the six piece, I'll just put EC2s on the 12, 13, 14 and 16. You know, and I normally use the 24 bass drum with that, but I've just bought this new 22, well, it's new to me, this old 22, 22 by 12. I might use that bass drum because you can just get the toms a little bit lower, you know. Um, So anyway, yeah, it's kind of different things, but you just got to have that kind of flexibility. You know, I'd always recommend two bass drums. I got away for years and years and years with an 18 and a 20. I had a Pearl Masters Custom 18 Jazz kit. I had that for a long, long time, did a lot, a lot of gigs on that kit. Replaced it with a Premier kit with identical sizes, just, um, it was just a slightly different, it's a different sounding kit, isn't it? I preferred the shelves of the Premier, it was the Gen X um, shells, were a different design and just a bit more jazzy. Um, but the uh, and then I had this DW kit which had a 20 bass drum, um, 10, 12, 14, all hanging toms, and uh, and I had the snare with that kit as well, which was an unusual 14 by 6, which was a great snare drum. Uh, sadly sold that to somebody a few years ago and was trying to buy it back recently but it's gone, it's been sold on no idea where that kit's gone so, um, yeah, amazing bass drum on that kit really, really amazing bass drum it's one of the few bass drums that a good friend of mine I play with, bass player he always misses that bass drum and he always says it's great that bass drum, wasn't it? You know, and you go, yeah, 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 it's gone yeah, but it's great bass drum, you know I know, never going to be able to get it back. But um, somebody owns that kit. It's a great kit. It was ninety built in eight eighty nine ninety Keller shell. In a good period for DW that, and uh, I was very lucky to get that kit um, through the distributor at the time, and uh, got it quite cheap, you know. And uh, yeah, had that kit for a long time. Had it for pff, blimey twenty over twenty years. And um, the only drum I didn't really like was the 12 because it was deep. It was like 12 by 10. And it was always a bit awkward, just a bit too deep. If it had been, because um, the 10 was was a 10 by 8, 10 by 7, 10 by 8. It was, it was like perfectly proportioned, you know. But the 12 was just a little bit, <clears throat> yeah, 12 by 10. So, yeah, gear is really, really important. And the driving thing um, and then getting on with people's good you know you've gotta have a tolerance for people um because you're not always you know gonna be around uh, people that are um, you know like minded I'm not talking about musicians, I'm talking about sort of peripheral people that you deal with, so it's like having good relationships with venues that you go back to um and also, like, if you run a band, um, you have to realise sometimes that, that the people in that band, how they behave to a venue can have an implication from you. You know, I remember years and years ago, I, had, uh, I used to have my own band. and I did this gig in a venue, I played it a lot, a lot, and it was for a promoter who... Well, he, he was a booker that worked in the venue. It he, he was... Um, He was kind of employed by the venue and they ran lots of different nights. um, And uh, I'd known him a long, long time. And then one day I just got this email off him and saying that, you know, my band, some of the members of my band had been very rude to his sound engineer and also to his staff and stuff. And um, and, uh, it was kind of, you know my responsibility really because it was my band i didn't really know what to do about at the time because i couldn't sort of imagine why anybody all the people in my band were really good friends of mine you know they were really close friends of mine and they were nice people nice human beings you know and they were not they were not prima donnas they were not difficult people they were reasonable people but something had wound somebody up on this occasion you know Something had happened and I'd I hadn't, i had not noticed it. And uh, he'd use this word belligerent, you know. Um and that's a word that's kind of like a difficult word, isn't it? You know, it's not a very nice word. But musicians sometimes can be come across as being that to non musicians because because it's like we we need sort of things to be a certain way. You know, if you've got a band and you're or you've got a sound set up or you've got a way you play or something, you know. Um then sometimes you you can sort of dig your heels in a bit and go, no, 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 this is is what I do, this is how I sound, this is how I play, this is my setup, this is how we're doing this, this is this music, all those things. And it only takes you having that conversation with somebody who's um, not going to respond well to that to cause a whole load of problems, you know. And it was a real problem for me. I didn't speak to this, um, I didn't play again at this venue and speak to this guy for a long time. Uh, and then I kind of uh, I went to make my peace. Uh I went in uh, after a, quite a long time went in to see this guy but he'd moved on he'd, he'd sort of given up and he'd uh, retired from that life you know he'd gone um, I think he'd, he'd got married and had a kid and decided he didn't want to work till 3am t- every night and just you know deal with that kind of lifestyle um, so sadly but but my relationship with the venue improved after that because I you know obviously went to say well this was a situation and they were like all oh, right okay well that was kind of resolved it resolved itself in a way but um it's just that thing you need to get on with people you know not not getting on with people gets in your way you know it gets in your way of being able to um uh, do the thing that we want to do, which is play music with people in in venues and play to audiences. Um, so I always try and have a good relationship with all with the venues that I play in regularly, and uh, and have had um, over many many years um, those relationships. And, and knowing you know knowing owners, not just not just the sort of bookers, but knowing the owners of venues and getting to know the people that work on the door, you know. That's really, really important. It's just be be nice to those people. Those people uh, look after you, you know, in ways that you probably don't even know. As a musician, uh, it's always good. I used to have... um, I used to play at some venues regularly and uh, used to know the people that worked on the door. Uh, And it was always really helpful just getting in and out of venues, you know, because... If you're, you know, if you behave, you don't behave nicely to people like that, they just make your life very difficult. And it's completely unnecessary because um, you just want to get on with people and you want as smooth, you just want things to be smooth, you know. You want things to be stress-free. You might have driven somewhere for four hours and it might have been a horrendous drive. And driving can be very stressful for for all sorts of reasons, you know, these sort of lunatics on the road and, you know, just traffic jams and weather and just all kinds of stuff, you know. You might arrive somewhere and you might be way more tense than you imagined, you know, just on the edge of like a nervous breakdown or something, I don't know, you know, just (laughs) feeling horrendous. And uh, if you're greeted with a smile somewhere by somebody that, you, you know, you see infrequently but, you know, knows you, uh, that can make a massive difference. But if you, you turn up at a venue and you've had a thing with somebody or somebody works on the door or somebody works behind a bar or the sound engineer or somebody, then it's a bit of a drag, isn't it? Because you're going from that sort of one situation of stress to another, you know. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, f- some people thrive on that stuff. I don't, you know, but I know, I know I've known people in the past that, just they don't care about that kind of stuff and they kind of thrive almost on creating chaos around them um but you know i find sort of life's easier if it's everything's the opposite of that and uh so yeah just get on with people get on with obviously people in the band that you play with you know but if you're playing with strangers like i was doing yesterday and the day before people i don't know well i kind of know a bit now because i've played music with them and spent time with them but you're meeting new people and stuff then it's always a nervous thing about how, you know, what somebody's personality is going to be like and are they going to like your playing and are you going to like their playing and all kinds of stuff. Are you going to be able to get on with them musically, personally, you know. Um, so you've got to really have this sort of something about you, I think. You know, it's... Um, we learn a lot of life skills um, playing music because it's like... The thing that I forget, well, actually, the thing that I am now involved in and, uh, and I forget as well is that I go to a place of work every day and uh, most days or weeks I see uh, a certain number of people and, uh, and what I forget is that for quite a lot of people who have a working life, that is their entire working life is that they go to a place of work and they see the same people every day and work with the same people and work in the working teams and, or whatever, and you know, and, uh, and have the same boss and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And when you play music, it's not like that. You know, you are not going to the same place every day. You are going to different places, playing with different people and dealing with different people that run... A venue or an event or whatever, where it can be different sound engineers. So all the time you've got to have this, you've got to have this kind of presence of mind about you about getting on with people, you know. And uh, it can be hard because we don't always feel like it, do we? You know, if we've you know, stuff going on in life and we're, you know, for whatever reason, going through some stuff, you know. Uh, having the sort of patience of a saint, uh, so to speak, can be hard work sometimes, you know. So you might want to find, I don't know, some little strategies for just, after you've done a long drive is, you know, try and be on time. Try, I always try and be early to gigs. That's my thing. I try and get there early. It's just something that I like to do, you know, Um because one thing I can do is I can park up and sit for five minutes, just not moving, you know, and just sit for five minutes and and then I can get up and find out where I'm supposed to be, who I'm supposed to speak to, how do I get my stuff in, all that stuff without running around and sweating and being stressed and, you know, and then, and then get on with the job of work, you know, uh, forgetting of course that the three hour drive there was the job of work and the the three-hour drive home will be part of the same thing, you know. So anyway, that's kind of all that stuff. And that's the kind of practical stuff. And then there's the musical stuff, which I am not even talked about yet. I've alluded to a little bit, but, um, but two things just sort of conclude this really to talk about that are re- I think are really important. One is is if you really want to be a useful, flexible working musician, if that's you know playing music for people, um, and I'm not talking about doing the portfolio stuff like teaching and 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 uh, running gigs and all those sorts of different things that people do as musicians you know, within the sort of wider spectrum of staying in the industry, so to speak. I'm just talking about someone who wants to play their instrument with people and try and earn a living out of it. Two things are two things are really important. One is is learn to read. Um, it's really useful. It's useful for you and it's useful for the people that you work with. You know, it it's not rocket science. Um, there's lots of different ways you can learn to read. Uh, I have a few systems when I'm teaching to help people. That struggle with reading, Um, and people struggle with reading for all sorts of different reasons. You know, Uh, I mean, there may just be some simple things of of like learning difficulties, like you know, dyslexia or something, where people have uh, an issue with reading for that. But you know, they can find strategies to overcome that even just be coloured sheets and things like that, you know. But then there's like a way maybe of just uh, of being able to look at the, the sheet music differently and using your memory, you know, like memory and recognition and, and sort of experience. So some of the things I teach is about sort of um, being able to get into the map of the part very, very quickly without re- without actually reading anything, just Looking at a lot of chart, like I was reading yesterday and I pulled this chart up and it was a tune I didn't know, a melody that I didn't know. I didn't recognise. I mean, I'm not I'm not great at remembering tunes by titles. I'm pretty terrible at that. And I know a lot of tunes. But you can say the name of a tune and i would be like, oh, how's that go? And then someone starts playing it. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 I know that, yeah, yeah. But I was looking at a tune yesterday I pulled it. There was a, you know, I had a pad of music, and all the tunes had a chart. Um, some of them were were just lead sheet style charts, so the, there was the map, recorded and melody. Some were drum charts that had some little kicks, hits, phrases, whatever you want to think about it, and form, you know, style and form. And I pulled this chart. I put it on the stand, and this was while. Uh, Tina was announcing the tune. So she was on the mic talking a bit about the tune. And I've got... I'm thinking... Oh, she's telling a bit of a story here. I've got 30 seconds. And in the 30 seconds, I'm looking at the chart. I'm counting the number of bars in each section. And it's just... It's dead obvious. It it turns out to be four lots of 16, actually. Funny form. Long form, but four lots of 16. 16. So there's a 64 bar form but it's all regular uh, and it was quite fast it was kind of quite a bright tune you know so it's flying by and that's so that's like but if you don't do that little map check while you're looking at the chart if you don't do it and you're trying to do it in the moment this is why you're trying to now play music with people in the moment you know you're trying to make do make something happen musically, you know. You don't want to sound like you just like ding, 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 whatever. Just reading through a chart, it's like, you know, why would anyone want to come and watch that? You've got to have that vibe about you, being able to be get into the get into the form, know what the form is, and then not read anything. And so this chart, and I was looking at the tune that was written out. I didn't recognize the tune. I didn't recognize the title of the tune, and it was fast tune. Um. You know, it was like three hundred 260, 300, something like that, you know. It was something, you know, pretty bright. Um, and so doing that little map check gave me then the opportunity to think about that whole reading situation in a completely different way. Now, if you don't know how to even decipher that information, if you've not learned to do that, it's like... You know, you maybe have amazing ears. I know some people that do have amazing ears and don't read great, and they get through music fine. and And I've got pretty good ears. Um, people have been described as having elephant ears in the past, and I've I got big ears, by the way. But it's just that thing of I. People seem to think that I listen well, and and I think I do. You know. Um, So I can get through a lot of musical situations by just using my experience and my ears, using that sort of thing of listening and being reactive and and, and, and understanding chord progressions and all that kind of stuff. But really, you should be able to read as well and, and be able to just look at form, get straight in your head and go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a whatever. You know, this is... four lots of of 16 yeah that's fine and it's bright so it's going to feel just like 32 bar form actually because of the speed of it you know the bars are going to be flying by one bar two bars three bars four bars five six seven eight you know that's like eight bars gone and um, so if you learn to read it's really helpful learn to recognize phrases get the modern reading text blue belson book learn to recognise shapes and phrases, learn to play in and out of phrases, some I teach all the time. So you look at a common phrase and you know whether it's a phrase to play into or play out of, it's a question or answer phrase, or a statement phrase where it doesn't require you to play anything into it or out of it. Those things, are just, these are all obvious things, you know, I'm probably speaking to people that I don't know exactly what I'm talking about, but if you don't, what I'm talking about, do some research. Because learning to read really, really helps you out and everybody else who's around you you know, um, because it just makes things easy. You can get straight to the music, you know what I'm saying, even from this little situation I was talking about yesterday. It's not a complicated situation, you know. For those who know what I'm talking about, it probably doesn't sound like anything, but for those who don't really know what I'm talking about, haven't really got the reading together, then think about why that would be useful. It's just advice I would definitely... Give to anybody who wants to be, you know, seriously, like think they can sort of turn up to a gig and work with people they don't know and play music they've not played before and get through it and do a professional job of it and sound happening and and be called again, you know. Because the main thing is you want someone to ring you again. You don't want to do that gig and never, you know, never. Especially if you enjoy the music. I mean, I've I've done loads and loads of gigs where I've played and enjoyed the music quite a lot. Never been called again. Hated the music. Never been called again really really like the music never been called again it's just this is what happens you know because for whatever reason something wasn't happening you know and that's fine um, if you can work out what it is you can do something about it um, but a lot of the time I've done gigs where I've you know turned up and, and sort of enjoyed the music been called again not really enjoyed the music been called again really loved the music been called again all those things have happened on the other side of it as well and, and they are all those things happened uh because i was as well prepared as i could be the 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 main reason i think why the i didn't get called again for most gigs that, that 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 happened with was because people didn't like the way i played you know uh i mean they may not have liked me and that's that's fine as well but i think i would probably say it's more likely they were not into my playing you know uh that's i think that's more common than the other thing um so there's not a lot you can do about that. You can't prepare for that. You know, that's one thing that's out of our controls. And I've talked about that in, in, in one of the other podcasts, you know, is it's just accepting it. Not everyone's gonna like what you do. It's fine. Because lots of people will like what you do, so it's cool. Don't worry about it. Um, and then the other thing, just to conclude, is learn to play some styles, you know. Get your style playing down. Um and learn. Drum parts. Um, I think I talked about this in one of the earlier podcasts of of not learning drum parts properly, um, playing, you know, music that I thought I knew and didn't really know the parts, you know, and uh, kind of getting told off for it. Um, but in some situations, being given a second chance, you know. But if you if you're playing like a gig where you don't know music that well, but you've got some good parts that are written. Uh, and you get those parts before the gig it's it's really useful to go to the original versions of those tunes where those arrangements will probably be written from the drum parts specifically and checking out the vibe you know because um, they'll probably they'll probably be like if it's like a groove a soul or a disco thing or something it'll have a sound vibe attached to it there'll be something about that hi-hat part which will be played a certain way the snare will sound you know, if it's a '70s thing or late '60s or '70s thing, it'll have that snare, that sort of T-towel snare sound. You know, just things like that, really. But style playing, and what I mean, what I mean by style playing, so is is the obvious things. If you um, if you've had a kind of, um, I mean, I, the model I always thought of when I was when I was younger was the kind of the Berkeley education. So uh, I always loved the story uh John Robinson uh the great John Robinson tells about Quincy Jones you know Quincy Jones liked Berkeley drummers because they had had what he considered uh a rounded education so that they they could all read they were all experienced studio players from college they played you know and John Robinson was like you know one of the Berkeley studio drummers i believe you know and the third thing was that they all played styles you know they had a good style base, and uh, that I always liked that idea. When I, especially when I got into my twenties, I was not I was not like that at all. When I was, in, when I was like fifteen or sixteen, I was I was like the opposite of that. I was completely on uh, my own ass, kind of artistically driven. You know, just nonsense really, um, believing that you know I could just play in this one way and <clears throat> I could do that in any situation. Which is pretty arrogant, really. But it's also like a defensive thing, isn't it? It's like a thing of like, it's like it's hard getting all those styles together. So if you're going to do, if you go, if you want to have the styles together, you need to do a bit of research. And um, so I, you know, I do it with my students. I, I get them into the just the basics of different styles, like like the Latin stuff, knowing the basics of those Latin styles you know i don't go into an exhaustive thing because i think that students that really get into that they go down a rabbit hole with it you know um like the students that like they get into new orleans playing for instance you know, I always do this kind of the basic New Orleans thing with the right, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, sticking, the Stanton Moore thing, you know. Well, it's not Stanton Moore's thing, but you know, it's something I kind of got from one of his videos. And uh, But it's just that that sort of basic New Orleans rhythm and then the sort of... The sort of Cascara thing played with a bit of a swingy thing. So those, that combination of those 2 stickings with a one, two, and and four bass drum, boom, da, boom, boom, boom. And then having a little bit of rudimental language, you know, just those basic elements can get you through um, a kind of situation where someone says, let's play something in a kind of New Orleans style, you know, and... Um, I've, they've certainly helped me, and I've played with some, you know, some musicians that you know kind of know that music well, and they've always been quite complimentary about the way that I played that. So I kind of think, well, you know, but there's like some of the people I teach, they really they get really really into that music, you know, and they they know far more about it than I do because it they just, they just get they just get to sort of get to really love that kind of vibe, you know. I really like Brazilian, the sort of samba and bossa nova stuff. I love that feel, and so I've kind of got a bit more into that kind of vibe uh, I know a little bit about Central American styles and you know cascada clave tumbao and songo and rumba and and then you know all the other kind of styles like cha-cha-cha um, beguine like and things just to sort of, sort of those kind of dance styles and then the swing stuff different swing tempos for you know for a different kind of dancing but also for era playing which I've talked about you've got to do your kind of research with era playing Obviously, learn to play with brushes, um, those kind of things. They're all really useful. Um, and different sort of funky styles and soul, kind of grooves, rocky stuff. Try not to sound too rocky when you're playing funk, you know. Uh, that's kind of... People get that. I've I definitely got that wrong in the past, you know. So just, yeah, get into the styles styles is really going to help you get into the reading it's really going to help you get on with people it's really going to help you you know um enjoy you've got to get into driving you're going to do a lot of driving there's nothing you can do about it if you hate driving do something else or get into driving go and have some lessons i did i had some lessons with with um not i don't mean just driving lessons i mean some uh, like advanced driving lessons just uh, i went to see a guy who who taught the police uh I had a, a couple of different people and then i've had a lot of instruction on the track you know which is just a different kind of driving but it, it all helps you kind of uh, just you kind of control the car and be more relaxed when you drive more confident when you drive you know because a lot of driving fatigue driving fatigue a lot of it is about is about actually being stressed and not being confident you know so uh and then just gear, yeah. Have good gear, you know. Don't turn up to gigs with with terrible gear that sounds awful because, you know, <laughs> people ain't going to want to listen to that. They just don't want to hear it, you know. It's like drums. Yeah, people are always set up. People always say, ah, oh, drums are so loud. You're, you're always... You're always sort of almost starting to fail in some situations. I played years and years ago. I Used to play with a lot of people who just say, "Oh, the drums are really loud." They weren't even listening to whether the drums were loud. Not. They just had this kind of preconception that drums were loud. You know, I can play pretty quietly, and uh, and you just turn up and you you like as soon as you start playing, people would be already kind of you know moaning about it. It's because it's, cause it's kind of preconception. So the better your gear can sound, and the more controlled you can kind of play, you know, you've got a good chance then of um, of not you know not drawing attention to yourself for all the wrong reasons. But even in those situations, you know, people are people are drawing attention to you without anything that you can do about it. You know, they've just got this kind of idea that drums are loud. You know, I always wanted to be able to play. Acoustic jazz trio in a church—that was always. That's the thing I always talk about when I am teaching. So that's what you want to be able to do. You just want to be able to like playing the worst acoustic for drums, like the best acoustic for vocals or classical music or saxophone. You know, those, though they are great, um, great acoustics for those instruments, and normally not the not the best for drums playing within an ensemble, a group situation. So, being able to control your sound enough so that you can play comfortably in that situation and so if you can play with an acoustic piano trio like a piano like a grand piano with no pa and a bass acoustic in that situation then I, I don't know whether there's a harder situation to play in but apart from something that's super loud you know like that the other extreme is 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 certainly as hard maybe even harder you know playing very very loud music and playing very very loud music for two hours or something i mean that's something i've never got together and is not i've just never had the opportunity anyway but if i was asked to do a gig like that i'd probably have to you know go on a diet and go into training you know um because the people that play that music are just incredible the the stamina is you know and, and super technical super relaxed you know it's um so yeah that's kind of the whole vibe, really. So that's kind of it. I've kind of rambled on. Uh, it's like I, I, was, I said today, I was going to do an hour. and I'll do 45 minutes. This would be a shorter one. Yeah, it's like an hour and 15. So um, brilliant. Well, that's kind of it for this week. Um, have a nice week. And um, yeah, hopefully uh, I will um, be able to get something else done. I've got quite a busy week next week. Um, I'm hoping to be able to do this though on the on either Friday or the Saturday, so get back on schedule. So um, yeah, but um, maybe see you then. So uh, have a good week, and yeah, bye for now.